I'm honored, privileged to be with you this morning. There is great honor and privilege to be able to open the Word of God and to share the Word with God's people. I'm also delighted and encouraged that you've chosen to do a series of sermons on the book of the Psalms. I'm convinced that the Psalms play increasingly as, I'm, as I grow older. How often do you say that, I guess? But in the journey of faith, the Psalms have become more and more precious to me over the years. And I trust that for each one of you, that will be the case as well. And for those of you that are younger, to get into the Psalms and to realize what stunning spiritual resources they can be to you, I commend them to you. And I'm privileged this morning to draw your attention to the words of Psalm 46. And if you have your Bibles or your smartphones, I encourage you to open them and turn with me to Psalm 46. If you don't have a Bible or a smartphone that has the text on it, just in front of you in the pew rack or the chair rack in front of you, you'll find a red book, which of course happens to be the scriptures. And if you draw, if you open that book, you'll find that copy of the Bible. You'll find Psalm 46 on page 403. So page 403 in the pew Bible. But important, I stress this for each one of us, for you, it's important to have the text in front of you. For indeed, ultimately, what I'm doing this morning is proclaiming this text. And it's so keen, so good, if you can see it, feel it, hear it, and allow God, of course, to speak to us through this ancient word. Psalm 46, I'll be reading the entire psalm. Give ear, for this is God's word. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth, he breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Thus far, God's word. Let us pray. O God of all grace, grant us, I pray, this grace, that through your word and through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you would illumine our minds, rekindle our hearts, and strengthen our wills. Grant us this grace, we pray, for we ask it in the name of the risen and ascended Christ, Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. As mentioned, many, if not most, of the Psalms are deeply significant to me in my journey of faith. But this Psalm has pride of place into that journey, and I'm always honored and privileged to be able to come back to it again. I, pr I presume that I knew about this Psalm before 1990, 
when it really came to light for me. I mean, the lines, God is our refuge and strength, be still and know, were part of no doubt my upbringing. But in 1990, I was drawn again and again to this psalm because of two things that happened to me and to my family. When we lived and worked, I served as the pastor of an international church in Manila in the Philippines. In 1990, Cory Aquino was the president of the country, but there was a multiple, actually, attempt, coup attempts against her, her regime or her government, and the military was divided. And indeed, at one point in March of 1990, there were two segments of the military, the Philippine military, that were squared off against one another just two blocks from our home. And you had the feeling, in case you didn't kind of realize it, that indeed from one day to the next, we didn't know what government was in place, who was running this country. And I felt kind of, kind of rather close to home, so to speak, figuratively speaking, and literally. I felt that indeed the nation was in turmoil. There was uncertainty about who would be in government the next day. From one day to the next, we didn't know who was running the place. And you would take for granted some degree of stability in the social order, but we could not take that for granted. And in those days, when my wife and I and our boys had to move out of our home and stay with friends while we waited... I was drawn to Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. The nations are in uproar, but he is in the city to be calmed and quieted by that assurance. Later that year, in July of 1990, again, our family, we were away from, the, from Manila at this time, and we were vacationing in the city of Baguio, which is about 5,000 feet to the north of Metro Manila, away from the heat and the smog, this beautiful mountain city. We were staying at a place that we loved to vacation, known as the Lutheran Cottages. And on this glorious day, we were out, outside, and I was playing baseball with my two sons, throwing the ball around, playing kind of different kind of variations on the game of baseball with these young fellas. And as we stood, the earth began to shake. Now, I grew up in Ecuador. I grew up in Latin America. And we had earthquakes all the time. It was just kind of like part of the shtick. And if you felt the earth kind of shaking like that, we just kind of went outside, waited for it to go away, went back inside and carried on with our lives. Earthquakes were not something unusual. But this was an earthquake like I'd never seen it before. I have a vivid memory of it. I could close my eyes and see it again. Here the earth was not so much shaking as it was rolling towards us like the waves of the sea. I had never seen it roll quite like that. And we could hear just two blocks away at the Hyatt Hotel, the entire hotel just crumbled. It did not have a foundation for that kind of a building. It just crumbled. And suddenly you realize that indeed you want to, and I think understandably take for granted on some level that the created order has some degree of stability to it. That indeed we are standing on something that is, relatively speaking at least, fixed and sure and dependable. But just as I had learned earlier that year that I could not depend on the stability of the social order, of the political infrastructure, I learned on July 16, 1990, that I could not take for granted that indeed the created order itself and the turning of the seasons and that the earth on which I stand, that somehow it's stable, that it itself is not stable, and where do I turn? And so you can understand why in 1990, Psalm 46 became rather significant to me. For the psalm references both. The psalm references that God is our refuge and strength and ever-present uh, help, uh, ever help in trouble. 
Even though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, even though its waters roar and foam, even though the mountains shake with their surging. And then later on, he speaks about the nations and how the nations are in uproar, how kingdoms fall. And indeed, when both things that we should be able to take for granted, or at least on some level, if not take for granted, trust in, lean in, depend on, and it's not inappropriate that we do, it's appropriate that we would expect that there's some degree of social order, that we cannot live our lives and we cannot flourish without a basic political, social structure, economic structure by which we live. And we expect that, and we lean on it, and we depend on it, and I think appropriately so. And on the other hand, we lean on and depend on the turning of the seasons and the stability of the created order that God, God's very self has made. And yet neither of these can be or should be our ultimate security, our ultimate confidence. They are not ultimately that which grants us serenity, strength, a lack of a capacity to live in fear but to live in confidence. Where does our confidence reside? If not in the political structures and orders, if not in the created order, of course our confidence resides in the one of whom it is said, God is our refuge and strength, our ever-present help in time of trouble. I've come back to this psalm again this week. Not only because I was scheduled to preach the psalm this morning, but because whenever there is a nation in uproar, I now kind of by default, I come to Psalm 46. And I don't know about you, I began the week by assuming that, that the English would, you know, would recognize that indeed Europe is a really kind of a good thing. Is it perfect? No. Is Brussels a problem? Sure, it's a problem. But when all is said and done, people, get with the program and let's get on with our lives. I felt this way a couple of years ago when the Scots were voting for independence, said let them have their day in the sun, but now can we get on with it? And I assumed that the same thing would happen here. So imagine my shock about 48 hours ago. I get up on Friday morning and they did what? And what does this mean? And I felt an immediate kind of unsettling. I happen to be kind of European in my sensibilities. I believe in Europe. In my lifetime, there hasn't been a major war in Europe. And I actually think that when the Germans and the French and the English get along, this is a good thing. And for those of you that are saying, but it wasn't just the English, it was Britain, Mr. Smith. It wasn't. The Scots didn't agree. The Northern Irish did not agree. And the Welsh didn't agree. Neither did London, for that matter. But more to the point, it was the English who did it. And did what? Well, we don't know. For me, this is unsettling. What will be the implications of this for the United Kingdom, for Europe? But the ripple effects are being felt globally. Uh, we, we probably should have a text we should add to Psalm 46. And the markets are in uproar. But it's not quite in the text. But the markets are in uproar today because of the uncertainty of what this means. And almost on any given week... Not, not every week, but on almost any given week, something happens in the created order that reminds us of the instability of the created order. And for me this week, it was Virginia. And indeed, it seems sometimes far away, the flooding that has happened. But the image, some of you would have seen it as well, of someone's home being lifted up by the waters, starting on fire. And here's this home on fire, unbelievable scene, going down the river, burning down the river. Unbelievable. Their, their, their whole lives up in smoke, literally, and down the river. And I'm reminded in watching that house, I'm reminded of scenes that we saw not too long ago. For those of us that live in Alberta, we were unsettled by what happened in Fort McMurray just less than two months ago. And on our campus at Ambrose University, 
We hosted people that were being evacuated from Fort McMurray and north of there, Slave Lake. They were being flown into Calgary and coming to our campus because we have residences. And it was interesting to me and tragic in a sense to speak with those that had been evacuated and realized that because of the fire, something entirely out of their control, they had lost, in some cases, everything. This one couple, new immigrants to Canada. And in fact, most of the people that were housed at Ambrose University were relatively new immigrants to Canada. When I asked the Red Cross why that is the case, they said, well, most other people have family somewhere. Even those that were working in Fort McMurray from, from Newfoundland flew home to Newfoundland to family. But these people have nowhere else to go. They're relatively new immigrants. And as I chatted with this one family from Syria, and you, see, you realize now there's a, a, a country in turmoil, if there ever was one. The UK is not in turmoil in any way, shape, or form like Syria has been and is. They lost everything. They come to Fort McMurray, and their home is gone. Where do we point one another in such times? Where do we turn when the nations are in uproar? Where do we go when indeed we are uncertain on both the political social order of which we are a part or the created order of which we are a part? Where do we go when we realize that we cannot find our security, our confidence, if we're going to be able to say the words, God is our refuge and strength, say the words, therefore we will not fear, how is it we are able to say, therefore we will not fear in the midst of all that is happening? It is because, and you know exactly where I'm going with this, it is because we are able to say these immortal words, God is our refuge and strength. God is our ever-present help in time of trouble. And these events in our lives, whether on a global stage or personally, are every time around an occasion to turn, to lean, to be drawn into the wonder again, to be still and know, as the psalmist puts it in verse 10, to be still and know that God is God. As was mentioned, I serve as the president of a university in Calgary. It's a Christian university a small university, liberal arts, but it also includes a theological seminary. I'm deeply privileged to serve in this capacity and deeply privileged to serve in the capacity of the president of the university that's affiliated with the Christian and Missionary Alliance, the denomination of which this church is a part. And I see things and I observe things and I learn things in this role. One of the things I've chosen to do in the four years, I've been that pr the president there for four years, is that every year I've chosen a psalm one of the Psalms to shape and inform my own prayers, my own reflections, my own journey. But then on the last chapel of the, of the year, I've preached that Psalm, having lived with it for the year. Well, a year ago this time, I chose Psalm 46. And I chose it in large measure because of something that I observed and learned in my first three years as a president. And that was this, that I don't think I was aware when I became the president at how anxious worried, fretful, contemporary undergraduate students tend to be. That is, I, I, when I was an undergraduate back in the 1970s, I know that shocks you, but there were universities back then, and we went to them, and we studied at them, ancient history. I, I am sure, you know, I, I think back to those years, and I think, I'm sure that we were, we were worried about stuff. I'm, I'm sure we were. But on the whole, we were children of the 60s, and things were relatively relaxed. You know, things happened, but it didn't, they weren't nearly as unsettling as it seems to be for young people of this generation that are now in their late teens and early 20s. My observation is this, that the young people that are emerging from our congregations and the vast majority of the students at the university come from churches such as this one. 
that the vast majority of these students are characterized by a degree of anxiety, worry, and fretfulness that borders on the pathological. They live with a perpetual anxiety, a perpetual worry. As young, one woman put it to me after I preached this sermon at the end in chapel, as one woman put it to me, she says, I'm worried all the time, and sometimes I don't know what it is I should be worried about, and I'm worried that there must be something I should be worried about. <laughs> Yikes, I'm thinking. You just assume, you assume that worry Fear, fretfulness, and anxiety are the way you're supposed to live. That this is what it means to be alive. That there's no other way to live. There's a level of anxiety and fretfulness and worry that is indeed destructive. It's insidious. It undercuts the capacity to live, to flourish, but also to be all that we are called to be to our generation. And thus, it seems to me that part of a program, you might say, of a congregation such as this one, of a university such as ours in partnership that surely part of our agenda is this. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to be a quick fix. But during their years of study and learning and worship and in community, that they would grow increasingly, gradually but assuredly in a capacity to say those immortal words. God is our refuge and strength, and therefore we will not fear. We have an education program in which students are going into the public schools and they're called into public schools and they need to be able to move into public schools, not as women and men of anxiety and fretfulness and worry, but with the deep confidence that Christ sits on the throne of the universe. Those that are in our business school need to be able to go into businesses or to be able to start businesses, be entrepreneurs, whether locally or globally, and do so not as women and men of fear and anxiety, but with a deep confidence that God is their refuge and strength. And it applies, actually, to every one of our students, whether they're in, in biology and they're going on into medicine, whether they're in the social sciences and hope to go on in law, whether they're in history and education and have no idea what they're going to do. That's just a little aside. I happen to deeply believe in the humanities. My undergraduate degree is in history, so I believe in the humanities. It's just that we're always discussing whether they're going to get jobs after this. But the more to the point, that regardless of what they do, and then when we come to the theological seminary, this fall, we're going to have 250 students in our theological, graduate-level theological seminary. I'm thrilled with the progression and the growth of the seminary. These are the future leaders of congregations and of churches. And these individuals need to be those kinds of people who know how to lead a congregation in this very sensibility that indeed God is our refuge and strength. These are the kinds of people that are going to lead congregations into this kind of capacity to live not with fear, but with the grace that is represented by the words, be still and know that I am God. I long for this for our students. I pray for this regularly, if not daily, that indeed our students would be moving incrementally to this capacity so that when we come to the commencement exercises and I hand them their diplomas, I can see in their eyes that these are women and men that trust deeply in the God who is indeed at the very heart of the city and at the very heart of the created order. I long for it not only for our students, I long for it also for my sons and my daughters-in-law. I long for it for my children. I long that they would indeed have this deep assurance as they navigate the challenges, the setbacks, the disappointments, and the opportunities of their lives. I long for it also as a grandfather. And indeed, I'm wondering if part of my role as a grandfather is precisely this, to be the kind of emotional anchor, an emotional orientation for my six grandchildren. I love being a, a grandfather. Indeed, I, I re I'm relishing kind of this chapter of my life. As I mentioned, I have six of them. Micah, my second son, has three children. I see them lots. I see them plenty. 
and uh, I, I have a role in their lives. In fact, the uh, last time I was with them, uh, the two girls, ages eight and six, um, and with Micah and myself, the four of us went to a soccer game together at BC Place. We saw Vancouver play Ottawa. They won, which is a good thing when you're there. But the girls were completely kind of oblivious to all of this. When you go to a soccer match with a, an eight-year-old and a six-year-old girl, girls, it's more about snacks and selfies than it is about soccer. <laughs> so just kind of coaching you if you're involved as a grandfather in these kinds of things. I love soccer. I've been following Euro closely all day. I'm aware of own goals yesterday and spectacular goals by the Swiss. But on that particular occasion, I was a grandfather first and a soccer fan second. But before that, several weeks before that, Micah and Sarah were away, and we hosted the three, Karis, Kaya, and Kaylin, little Kaylin, a four-year-old boy, these, these three children, we hosted them in our home, and we did the full kind of grandparent thing. And that includes when they get up in the morning, that grandpa, that's me, I make them breakfast, and it's really, it's a hugely fun thing, it's the only meal I know how to make. But somehow the phenomenon of grandpa making them breakfast is a bit kind of as entertaining as Disneyland could ever be. I make the eggs, chop up the sausage, and then I reach for the avocado and they scream. Because avocado is for them gross, just for what it's worth. I just, it is never, I say it, it's adult food. And they're resolved they will never eat avocado, so help them God. So that's not, you know, that, that's part of the shtick of being a grandpa. I take them for a long walk, which inevitably involves, I hope, a conversation about the goodness of God's creation and its beauty. And then towards the end of the day, to kind of give Joelle a bit of a break, my wife, uh, I read to them. She reads to them as well. And this is a hugely gratifying experience. The girls both, ages six and eight, they are voracious readers, but they still love to be read to. We have a huge stack of children's books, some of them newer publications, some of them older publications, but they love the old books and we read to them. And I have this this deep delight to sit on the sofa with one grandkid on one side and one on the other side and one stretched out across the back of the sofa behind me while I read to them. It's a sacred moment. These books, though, um, some of them are older, as I said. And as older books, they sometimes have uh, kind of gender stereotypes that I'm concerned about. And so I feel that as we read the text, we need to adjust the text culturally and otherwise to contemporary sensibilities. So if the, if the text, for example, refers to cowboys, I feel that I should say cow persons, just saying. <laughs> or if the text refers to stewardesses, I change it to flight attendants. I don't want my girls to kind of have, you know, preconceived notions about gender roles and all of that. But for Karis and Kaya, these, these girls, especially for Karis, the text, Grandpa, she would not use these words, but this is the intent. Grandpa, the text has been given once and forever, and it is a sacred text, and you do not mess with the text. Now, uh, as you can tell, I'm holding the Bible, but she gives it that kind of authority. Who do you think you are to change the text? When she gets to the Bible, she'll do fine. She will trust the text given once and forever. But for the moment, I try to explain to her but the reasons why I'm changing the text, and she just has no patience with this. And if while I'm reading, I just change one little thing to see if she's listening, I'll hear her behind me, leaning across, Grandpa? And I'll know I have crossed the line. I go back and read the text as it has been given. <laughs> but after the girls go off to play, sometimes I'll read just to Kalen, the four-year-old. And he knows these books. He's had them all read to them. But he loves it, if I can use a jazz term, when I riff off the text. <laughs> he loves it when I mess with the text. 
And I can feel, I can close my eyes and feel his little body, this four-year-old stocky little boy, lean into my shoulder as I read to him. And I know full well that the text that I'm reading is quite secondary, that the most powerful thing that is happening is a little boy leaning into the shoulder of his grandfather. And yes, we read, and then I change the text. And I love it as I'm reading, and I make the slightest little change in the text, wondering if he's listening, and then I can feel his little body chuckle up against my shoulder. He got it. And I know that he's at peace with me, with his world, in the midst of all of the turmoil around his life, and his family is moving, even as we speak. They loaded up a truck yesterday. In all of the midst of that turmoil, this boy has found a center point, a peace with his grandpa. And here's something else I know. I know he's only practicing. I know that 10 years from now when he's 14, the odds are he will not lean into his grandpa's shoulder. Well, I'll, f I'll fall over. He's not going to do that then. This is for a season, but I know that my role in part right now is to assure him that indeed there is a center point to the universe. And even if for now it's me, he's only practicing because eventually may God grant him this grace to grow increasingly as he grows older in the capacity to lean into not his grandfather, but the one of whom it can be said he is our refuge and strength. I do not know the particulars of your life. I do not know the things that perhaps are unsettling you right now. Perhaps they are on a global stage, such as what happened in the United Kingdom this last week. Perhaps they are particulars in your workplace or in your family. But here's the thing. This kind of thing happens all the time. There are things that will happen in our lives that will unsettle us. And the question then becomes, will we allow that which unsettles us to take root within us or will we develop the spiritual habits, the spiritual practice of leaning into the one of whom it can be said, he is our refuge and strength. My sisters, my brothers, my friends in Christ, let this be the habit of our hearts. When things are unsettling out there or in here, may we turn and learn what it means to say the words of verse 10. Let me read verse 10 and 11 for you again. And then we'll have a moment or two of silence to reflect on this in the light of our own circumstances as the worship team comes to lead us in a hymn of response. Hear again the words of Psalm 46, verses 10 and 11. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen.